This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded February 23rd, 2023. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. And today my guest is Dr. David Daniels. Dr. Daniels is an EHS professional, podcaster, speaker, consultant with ID2 Solutions, a National Safety Council board member, a thought leader and culture warrior. And as Dr. Daniels says, is also the son of a 14 year old who got lucky. Dr. Daniels joins us today from South Fulton, Georgia. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Good to be here. Well, Dr. Daniels, how many, how long, how long have you been at the EHS um, career? Well, uh, the truth of the matter is if I count all of the years, it would be, this year would be 40 and a half. Wow, you might hold the record on this show. Well, um, yeah, because uh, now some might dispute that because I, I, I actually started in the fire rescue service mm. and people don't, even in the fire service, don't see themselves sometimes as safety people. Yeah. But uh, I figured out that I was a safety person pretty early in the fire service career yeah. and um, finally realized I got dumped into the lagging indicator side of the system and prefer to be on the leading indicator side. How did you get into the fire service? Um, I was working construction in Seattle, Washington. And uh, matter of fact, I, I'll, I tell this story. Uh, I was out on a sign crew. That was back in the days when they grabbed some kid. I think I was... 19 or yeah about 19 at the time uh, and working a construction job they don't give you any training at all they put a sign in your hand and say it says stop and slow yeah and uh you go stand out there and you do traffic i had again no training uh i don't even think i had a vest or anything just stand up there with the paddle and it get it doesn't get cold in seattle all that often the the weather's tends to be pretty mild but this particular winter it was cold and i recall thinking to myself, I wish a car would just come around the corner, hit me and kill me and take me out of my misery. That's pretty extreme. Uh-huh. That's how bad it was. That's when I knew I needed to find something else to do. So a colleague suggested, hey, I'm going to, this is what, you know, within a short period of time, hey, I'm going to go take the test to become a firefighter. You want to go? I said, sure. <laughs> uh, we went and took the test. I passed it. He failed it. And the rest is history. Oh my gosh. Wow. And how long were you in the fire service? Um, active for 32 years. Oh my gosh. And so you started out by talking about leading and lagging indicators within the fire service. What did, what did that look like? Well, um, the lagging indicator part caught up with me quickly. I saw my first person die in front of me at 21 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw my first colleague get killed, uh, about a year later. <laughs> and there was something about that, that didn't seem to register with me. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that's, you know, they told us that bad things would happen, but I, I, when you see it up close and personal and, and over the course of the career, um, I stopped counting at 19. I think there are probably more than that. Yeah. And so when I talk about safety, when I talk about, um, you know, a lot of these issues that some folks have read in books, I guess I feel a little bit differently about it because these are real people when I, you know, so I've, you name it. You name it. I've seen buildings collapse and people riding on motorcycles without the right gear and mm -hmm. people ride bicycles, run into buses. And, I mean, you name it. You, mm -hmm. you, you just you just name it. But in, in every single solitary case, there was a safe there was a hazard 
that was not identified, not assessed, and not mitigated. Mm -hmm. And in a, the, virtually all of them, there was a psychosocial route to the hazard as well that was just not paid attention to. Somebody said something didn't feel right, didn't look right. You know, the, their, mm -hmm. their sixth sense kicked in and said, I probably shouldn't do this. They overrode it, yeah. and something negative happened. Yeah. Well, did this, did, did this sort of awareness come to you pretty soon into it? And then the, did you think, like, gosh, I, need, I want and need to do more and different? Or what happened, what happened for well, you Well, it, it actually started pretty early. Um, yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to be hired in one of the first recruit classes. So Recruit Class 41 in the Seattle Fire Department was the first class hired after we switched to a 24-hour shift <laughs> and after someone decided that wearing a self-contained breathing apparatus was actually mandatory. Okay. Because prior to that, none of my instructors was a mandatory. It was only mandatory for me. They didn't have to do it. <laughs> um, when I, so when I got out on the, you know, on the fire truck, uh, I, I came out of training with training. I didn't have the experience, but I did have training. Mm -hmm. And so the first building fire that I went to was on, uh, I still remember it was on 39th and Albion Place. I'm not sure what's there now, <laughs> but um, in Seattle, in the uh, northern part of, of Seattle near the, uh, near the campus of the University of Washington. So I ride up on this 1964 uh, fire truck riding on the back. Mm -hmm. uh, we pull up the uh, big apartments on fire. My officer gets off and goes one direction. The driver goes another, and they leave me standing there. Oh, my gosh. Literally. So, again, I'm 21 years old. <laughs> uh, have never done this before for real, and they just mm -hmm. ran off. And so I put my, you know, my metal survivor self-contained breathing apparatus on my back and went into this building and kind of bumped in a bunch of people. Nobody asked me what I was doing. Nobody. I had a number on, so it said I was a recruit. Nobody asked me. So I wandered around in this building on fire and, you know, and eventually came back out and took my mask off and they, we hopped on the truck and didn't even talk about it oh, man. because that was the culture at the time that people just kind of did whatever they did. And again, that, that's th this whole thing about being fortunate is had I been in, uh, in, in the industry, maybe two years earlier, I wouldn't have put that mask on because that's not what they told people to do. And, and I could have ended up like many of my colleagues with cancer. Yeah. Uh, I could have ended up like other colleagues who got lost, trapped, and killed in buildings on fire. Mm -hmm. I could have gotten thrown off the back of the fire truck like another of my colleagues did. But mm -hmm. I, you know, the, the Lord was just smiling or my mom's prayers were working. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe it was a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. You got lucky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when did you start making a shift and, and getting interested in um, health and safety? So my first health and safety interest occurred, um, would have been early 90s. I was at a, um, again, at, a, at an incident in downtown Seattle when an electrical vault was on fire. Mm -hmm. And I can, hear, I can hear it popping out. Popping <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and watching the buildings go dark in downtown Seattle, block mm -hmm. after block after block. And so one of the battalion chiefs comes over to me, and I'm a captain at the time, and says, hey, you're going to be the safety officer. I go, okay. <laughs> What's that mean, right? Exactly. I had yeah. no idea what it meant. I had no idea what my role was. They were checking a box because that's at the time what we did. We checked a box. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I eventually ended up uh, being uh, assigned 
as a battalion chief safety officer and the deputy calls and says, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to do a better job at, you know, having folks in this office and so, go see if you can figure out how to get us certified. So I, okay. So I went, to, I went to a group called the Evergreen Safety Council. Come to find out they had a safety and health specialist cert certification program that was um, was fairly highly regarded in industry, but nobody in the public sector had ever come to a class. At least I didn't think so. Mm -hmm. So I went to the class and come to find out it also, everything that they taught was consistent with the NFPA standard, National Fire Protection Association standard at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was the first person to get a dual certification as a safety and health specialist and a fire service health and safety officer and that was now 30, boy, 33 years ago. Oh, it's so fun to hear people's origin stories when you're at the, at the we're at the tip. That is, that's awesome. So that, yeah. that was, that was my mm -hmm. first, my first credential and it's still yeah. hanging. It's hanging on the wall right, right next to me right now. I really, um, mm -hmm. I, as a matter of fact, the credential, I don't think they even have it anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the next, you know, year or two, they're going to, they're going to stop supporting it. So, but I keep it because it was my very first one and you never forget your first. That's right. That's something to be proud of. That is cool. Yeah. So were, were you able to, you know, you, you got the job as safety officer. Were you able to do some things with it in the fire service or did you make a shift? And Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the safety officer, the safety, you know, credential, um, it, it helped me be a better um, fire rescue person, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. It also got me in a little bit of trouble because not everybody agreed with me. So I got my first fire chief's job. Um, you know, that's, that's how I ended up here in the Atlanta area. And one of the reasons that I left Seattle and came to the Atlanta area to take the chief's job was my, the trauma around the people I'd seen getting killed in Seattle, to be yeah. quite honest. I didn't yeah. realize that until after I got here that I had to process some of my own trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, so some of the people that worked with me at the time, uh, I think they probably thought I was insane mm -hmm. because I was so hyper-focused on safety and, you know, the, I, I was just, but it was, again, we, we tend to uh, see the world through our own eyes. That's right, through our own lived experience. Through our own lived experience. And, yeah. and I, I was probably overly cautious in some areas, but it was, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have to be responsible for one of the 450 people I was res that I was responsible for, yeah. for one of them getting killed. I just, yeah. that was a bit much for me. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. I mean, based on my own experience, too, with witnessing workplace death, your, your lens changes and you're like, ooh, when you see anything close or near, uh, near whatever that experience was, you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So um, <laughs> that also, uh, so again, that focus on safety that, um, you know, I ended up becoming the uh, chair of the International Association of Fire Chief Safety Committee. <laughs> and well. of all things. Yeah. Uh, also ended up being on the board of directors at the IFC, you know, in, in this safety role. So, so again, anyone who hung out with me long enough knew I was, safety was my thing. And the, the buildings on fire and, you know, the confined space rescue, all that stuff. I mean, the, um, while on the one hand, it's a, it's, it's a rush. I got to tell you, there's nothing like it. Uh, but there's also this, you know, part of me that says that the vast majority of these 
occurrences, these incidents, they don't really have to happen that way. And every time they do, somebody is paying with their, uh, with their bodies, uh, in some cases with their lives, with their hard-earned money, and they can be prevented. All of them can. I haven't seen one yet that couldn't have been prevented, uh, but, you know. Me either. Yeah, fo folks, yeah. they didn't know what they didn't know, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. and it happened. So you've, <laughs> you, you have a Ph.D., I'm guessing you did a lot more studying in safety. You want to bring us up to speed on like, how did that happen? And, and I want to hear about your passions today. So, so my PhD is actually in occupational health and safety of, of all things. And, and where did you find a university for that? Because listeners might want to know that because we all know we just can't pick up health and safety degrees at any old university. That, that, that's right. Capital Technology University just outside of D.C., um, now, it, I, I do have to be honest, it was the second program that I was in. I was in one uh, earlier, early on, and I was going to do organizational leadership or something, but yeah. um, one thing led to another. I got to the point of, you know, uh, being ABD or all but dissertation, and, you know, just kind of wasn't interested. I mean, I, mm -hmm. some of it mm -hmm. had to do with the institution at the time. I won't call their name. Yeah. you know, but they, uh, they didn't treat me the way I wanted to be treated. So mm -hmm. I said, I don't really need to do this anyway. So I stopped. Mm -hmm. And, um, fortunately I ran into the folks at CapTech U, uh, the, so the program is run the, the, uh, the Dean in charge of doctoral programs actually lives in Scotland, I believe. <laughs> and, uh, he, the thing he told me is he said, we don't do academic hazing here. And I was all okay. over that. Okay. Because mm -hmm. I don't believe in hazing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I was hazed, and uh, <laughs> in the fire in the fire service. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, every yeah. everybody was. Yeah, you know, yeah. Okay. and mm -hmm. I didn't like it, and mm -hmm. um, and one of the so so I I don't believe that we have to haze people to get them to do uh, to 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 excel. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's what really helped me. And and shout out to my advisor, uh, Dr. Linda Martin, uh, mm -hmm. who. Had it not been for her actually not hazing me, I wouldn't have finished because you know I'm not a, I'm not a kid I'm not you know 23 years old, yep. and uh, I know my profession already, and so my research was focused on the lived experience of black workers' exposure to psychosocial safety hazards in the American workplace, and I, and it it opened my eyes in a lot of areas, uh, mm -hmm. two of them uh, particularly. I didn't find a lot of research being done on black workers in general mm -hmm. uh, from a safety perspective. Some mm -hmm. of that has to do with our long history of not seeing people who look like me as human anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the other has to do with the lack of focus around psychosocial hazard mitigation. Yeah, talk, talk about that. And how do, I, I mean, if, if, this, if this term sounds new to people who are listening, how would you, or how do you define it? Well, I define it, and my definition, so in my research, I found uh, 10 different definitions from eight countries, and I found over 80 examples of a psychosocial hazard. Oh, wow. So uh, what I try to do is synthesize that data, that information into a more concise definition, at least in my uh, scholarly opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so my definition is a psychosocial hazard is a psychosocial factor that is perceived 
or experienced by the person exposed as a threat to them that in turn affects their behavior. Psycho, how you think, social, how you interact. And that is, in my view, the most significant hazard that people are exposed to in the workplace, bar none. I wouldn't disagree with you for one second. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you do you have a couple of examples so people can kind of imagine that in their minds? So, so, so um, and again, these, uh, I'm going to give you a couple that are actually listed. There is a international standard. The International Organization for Standardization has created okay. a standard, ISO 45003. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. And it's in support of ISO 45001, the uh, safety management system standard. But mm -hmm. in 45003, one of the, uh, the hazards that in this long list is role ambiguity. So <laughs> people, how, so how is that? So uh -huh. I'm hired, I get a new position, whether I be hired or promoted into a new position. And people don't tell me really what my job really is. Either I don't have a job description. Mm -hmm. So I, one of my last W-2 employers uh, <laughs> didn't mm -hmm. have a job description for me. And my master's degree is in HR. So I know how to write them. I know mm -hmm. how they should be put together. And every job that I've had working for other people for the last, oh, I don't know how many years I've had to write my own job description because the people who were supposed to write them either didn't write them or didn't update them. Mm -hmm. So I was being held, so some of this is personal on my part, you're holding me accountable for things and I don't know that I'm wrong until you tell me. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've erred in some way until you say, well, you did that wrong. Well, how was I supposed to know that? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the job description, I know I didn't get hired to be a mind reader. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and, and that creates a tremendous amount of stress for people who are, sim and, and, it, and this goes into even being a safety professional. So I, I know you hired me. You said I was a safety manager, safety director, vice president of safety, whatever it is, mm -hmm. until I actually start acting like it and start, you know, kind of identifying these areas where we need improvement. And then all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, right. Yeah. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't go that far. We didn't we didn't mean we didn't mean that. We didn't mean that. We you yeah. know, we we said that yeah, safety is our number one priority. Uh -huh. But um in a in an organization I was with here recently, until workers started showing up with holes in their shoes. Yep. Their safety shoes had holes in them and then when I, you know, did my job to make sure that they got proper shoes, it's like, "Well, what are you doing? What, mm -hmm. what do you mean? What am I doing?" That's mm -hmm. my job. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Been there, done. Been there, done that exactly with the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, pr pr you know they only get a certain number. No, they get as many as they need to ensure that they don't get a foot injury because that's actually going to cost you more. Uh -huh. So again, the role mm -hmm. is ambiguous to the extent that people yeah. say one thing, yeah. but then they act in a different way, and that creates stress for uh, for people who care. Yeah. It's stress. And yeah. ultimately, the, uh, so, so the, the hazard called psychosocial mm -hmm. has risk associated with it. Depending on how vulnerable you are to that risk, the, uh, the, the, that risk often manifests in the form of stress. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. stress can kill you. Yeah. It can yeah. kill you.
So uh, I th and again, in the United States, because we are behind the other 30 countries in the world who have actually identified this as a real safety hazard thing. Yeah. Uh, it is in their legislation. As a matter of fact, Canada has a really strong standard that's been in place for 10 years. Australia has legislation actually that just went into effect uh, last fall, if I'm not mistaken, uh, has some really strict requirements that you, you can end up being uh, fined uh, or in some cases, if connected to some other aspects of that legislation or even arrested. Uh, and, and, and again, there are other countries around the world who take it this seriously that psychosocial hazards are just as important as biological, chemical, ergonomic, physical, and other safety aspects. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. We did have a podcast guest a, a while back, um, Dr. Marnie Dobson, who did us uh, an episode with us on workplace stress being an epidemic in the United States. Yes, yes. And yeah, and it's so interesting to hear that other countries, yeah, legislated around it. Well, and a shame, shameless plug here, I, I, I host a podcast myself called Psych Health and Safety USA. Yeah. And the podcast is sponsored by a company from Australia. Uh, it's one of five, it's one of five globally. They have one in Australia, one in Singapore, mm -hmm. one in Canada, one in the UK, one here, and just recently start one uh, in Australia focused on schools. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's so. But but the one here in the U.S. is very different because I have to introduce people to the concept. And and, and the other thing that I'll mention is psychosocial hazards are connected to, but not the same as psychological safety. Because that's the, that's the Amy Edmondson, um, yes. you know, has done a great job. Of, and I, and one of these days, I'd love to meet Dr. Edmondson and, and uh, if, if I got her permission to hug her, <laughs> because she has helped people understand how important psychological safety is. But that's, that's now a cottage industry to itself. It is. Yeah. Talk about the difference. The difference is psychological safety is not an occupational safety and health concept. It okay. is a management and leadership concept. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, it is important to be able to bring your whole self without fear of retribution or, mm -hmm. you know, people giggling and laughing when you bring your whole self to work. That's mm -hmm. important. But, but if you do not monitor, so identify, assess, and mitigate the psychosocial hazards that you're mm -hmm. exposing people to, you will not get or keep psychological safety. So again, they're connected, but, but most people who talk about it are not safety people. They are leadership and management people, or there's a lot of conversation from the mental health community. And again, mm -hmm. I don't say that because anybody owns it. Nobody mm -hmm. really owns safety, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. But we come at it from a different perspective. So when mm -hmm. I talk about psychosocial hazards, I talk about them similar to the other hazards. So if you, but here's what I'm finding, is particularly in the, uh, what people perceive to be low hazard occupations, you know, they're not doing construction, they're not doing mm -hmm. mining and, mm -hmm. and, you know, oil extraction. They don't mm -hmm. think they have major hazards. Mm -hmm. But what they do have is this mm -hmm. epidemic of mm -hmm. psychosocial hazard exposure, mm -hmm. and that's also connected to uh, your lack of, being able to recruit people that you say you want, to retain people you say you want to keep, mm -hmm. uh, you, or to keep people safe you say you want to keep safe. You'll never be able to do that if you continue to expose me to this hazard over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
And when I bring it up, you minimize my feeling about this to say, oh, you're just being soft or you don't understand. No, I, I, everyone understands how they feel. Mm-hmm. How do we go about, how do employers go about creating an environment, a work environment that's free from psychosocial hazards? How do they create them? Uh, you do it the same way you keep your, uh, your organization or occupation free from other hazards. What is the hazard? Mm-hmm. How vulnerable are we to it? And what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really pretty simple. And, but the other thing that I will say is uh, safety as an occupation, at least in my view, is a product of industrialization. That's, you know, so it, we, many of the hazards that we've talked about for the last, you know, 100 plus years um, have been uh, the, the product of industrialization of machines. And so we have done a pretty decent job of mitigating physical hazards people don't as a matter of fact you know go back to the fire service here for a second um the (laughs) people don't generally die in fires at work they die in fires at home because you know we've made the 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 built environment or the workplace really really safe from fires we have lots of fire sprinklers and extinguishers and the smoke detectors and escape plans and blah 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 all this stuff Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it's actually important. Some of it's redundant, but I won't get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we've been hyper focused on on that issue and have forgotten about how people are feeling. And and, and so again, the way we I, again identify what is so, so I created an instrument, and, and I'm happy to share it when people you know bring me into work with them. I created an instrument in my research called a psychosocial hazard inventory. Hmm. And it very simply asked people, have you been exposed to this? Hmm. That's it. Can you give an an example of have you been exposed to? Can you fill in the blank for just like one example? Again, let's go back. Have you been exposed to role ambiguity? Have you Uh, been exposed to cases where your skills were underutilized? Have you have you been exposed to situations where you had time pressure? so you see what I yep, mean? I, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, Got yeah. It. So, so the, the, and again, much of the research from a safety perspective that I came across is quantitative in nature, because as a society, mm-hmm. you know, particularly here in the United States, we bought yes. in on Robert Taylor's idea about scientific management. Everything's got to have a number. All y'all who went to business school, that's what you saw when you're in business school: numbers and graphs and charts, and and there's this. There is this leaning towards quantitative measures of everything. Mm-hmm. I believe we are lacking qualitative measures of how effective those things are, though, mm-hmm. because psychosocial hazards are about how people feel about things, not the 10 percent increase or decrease in some number. If I, so a, a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Myron Golden, as a matter of fact, said that People do things for one reason and one reason only because they feel like it's not it's not complicated because Mm -hmm. they feel people uh, people sign up to work in your company because they felt like it. There was something about the advertisement that made them feel like putting in the application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People took the promotion. People, you know, people drove a certain way because of how they feel. But then when we analyze the failures in the system that result in 
property damage, uh, exposure to, you know, to carcinogens, to, you know, safety-related things at work, fatalities. We tend to look at the quantitative measures and not the psychosocial, not the, the qualitative reasons for why did people do that? What was going on in their head when they, and then fill in the blank. Yeah, the first time I was, I was introduced to that concept was from an industrial psychologist oh, back with the tail end of my career with OSHA. And we were talking about, um, I, think it, I think we were focused on investigating accidents, things that happened. And he gave all these questions that had to do with things that you never would record. Like, what happened to the employee last night? What was going on in their home life? When they arrived at work today, how did they feel? And it was all of these things that were multifactorial that led up to the event. And it was the first time in, in, in my career that, oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because, so again, back to Dr. Edmondson's concept of psychological safety, bringing your whole self mm-hmm. means also bringing things that the employer may not want at work. Right. That, but that's that's the gig, folks. Yep. The, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. it. That's, you that's can't separate the, the person right. from their yeah. experiences. So, mm-hmm. yeah, some of them are going through divorces. Some of them do have sick parents. Some They do have a bill that didn't get paid. And sometimes the bill didn't get paid because you aren't paying them a livable wage. That's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation. <laughs> yep. um, there are things that are going on in people's lives, and somehow – you have people who believe, oh, they just need to leave that at home and come to work and do their part. You know, the reality is they can't. They can't. They can't. They can't. And, and if, if you are really interested in safety and really interested in retaining good people who actually want to do great work, you need to be concerned. So uh, uh, what, what, there was, <laughs> if you look at a system and the system is not producing what you want it to produce, uh, w. Edwards Deming would tell you that 95% of the issue is with the system. It's not with the people. Mm-hmm. So why is it? Why is it that every time someone gets injured, we blame the person? Oh, they should have. And da, 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 always, always, always. It's the easiest. It's the easiest. Lazy, it's the easiest, laziest thing to do. <laughs> but guess what? If you and this again, this is what I found in some of my fire service experiences. We had a situation in Seattle in January 5th, 1995. Four firefighters were killed in a frozen food warehouse when the floor collapsed. The concrete floor collapsed. Wow. In Pittston, Pennsylvania, uh, less than two years prior to that, the same thing happened. Mm. So it, it, it's about the systems that people are using, not the people that are in those systems, and that's where our focus should be. And this is where this other term, psychological health and safety comes in because that's about the systems that are in place to address the existence of psychosocial hazards and create an environment where you can actually get psychological safety. Yeah. Dr. Daniels, you, you've mentioned um, as a society, we're not into how people feel. As we're trying to, you know, if people are listening and thinking, who Dr. Daniels is on something here. I wonder how I can start bringing this into my workplace. And you've given some ideas today. 
And if if one of those starting points is trying to pay attention to how people feel, and maybe that's not a starting point, you can you can correct me. Like well, I, I do have you, a I have a starting yeah. place for you. Okay. Uh, the first person is looking in the mirror and how do you feel? <laughs> that's 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 the issue, because the uh, <laughs> the safety is not for other people. My job as a safety professional is not to make anybody else safe. My job is to be safe myself and assist people with information that will help them decide whether or not they want to get in this boat or not. <laughs> it is not, and, and that's something that emotionally I've had to, over the last you know, two, three years as a matter of fact, have had to, to get a, a perspective on, your problem can't be more important to me than it is to you <laughs> because that creates stress for me. So again, if you do not want to wear a seatbelt, that is your prerogative. Now, the consequence to that at this particular organization may be that you don't get to ride in our vehicles. Uh, it may, but it's not, we're not angry with you. This is not, this is not, I don't believe that you discipline adults. I don't believe in discipline, period, to be quite honest, particularly corporal, but I don't believe in that. I believe that we should find ways to correct the behavior of, of folks when it's not uh, consistent with whatever environment that we're in. But this idea about we're just gonna make them, you can't make people do things if they don't want to. Yeah, because when you're not looking, they're gonna do Th they're it. They're gonna do it they're... anyway. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I, so again, <laughs> I, I, I have to look in the mirror and go, how important is this to me? And I wanna model the behavior. And in, if, if in my circle of influence, there are other people who I'm now responsible for, my number one job is to create a safe environment. So safe environment so they can get things done. As a leader, and again, leader as, I make the distinction between leaders and managers, yes. a, a, a people leader, your number one responsibility is to create a safe environment for those who say they wanna follow you, period. There's mm -hmm. nothing else more important, nothing. Because mm -hmm. as you create a safe environment, they will get the work done. Your job's not to do the work. It's not even to get work done. It's to cause work to get done. When we spoke previously, Dr. Daniels, you mentioned a book called The Master Communicator's Handbook. Is that something you want to talk about and how it, how it, how it um, intersects with our conversation today? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, 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 the book, and again, I picked the book up at a, uh, at, at a, uh, a meeting of the World Future Society of all places. <laughs> and and they're, they're talking about how, you know, futurist, and I consider myself to be one of those as well, uh, we, we get these lofty ideas about the future and what's great and all these things that are going to happen, but we sometimes forget about what people are actually hearing or what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, what the book talks about is the importance of making sure you're focusing on the person who's receiving this information, what they're hearing, and not always so much on what it is I want to say. Uh, there, uh, uh, another book called The Speed of Trust, uh, Stephen Covey, the seven habits guy, his son wrote The Speed of Trust. Okay. And he talks about in that book, the fact that we evaluate ourselves based on our intent. We evaluate other people based on their actions and what they do. Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't really know uh -huh. what their intent was. And, and, and now I've added this part, but then what we do is we assign intent to other people based on what we would do. 
<laughs> that's so true based on the story that we're making up in our heads about someone else. That, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but what we often don't do is check the story. Because just because I told myself in my head, this is what's motivated. So that person didn't do this because they just weren't following the rules or they were lazy or that, 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 that. all this yeah. judgmental language, particularly from a safety perspective about, you know, they didn't care and they, those workers and, and that, 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 that I, I've, I've had to help, you know, I've had to speak to myself about not getting, cause I would get angry about that to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't take kindly to people being, mistreated, uh, being, you know, abused. And uh, yeah, you you can't do it to me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's our role, right? I mean, I mean, as at the heart of our occupation, I think of us as being, you know, worker justice where, you know, the things that get my ire are when people have been mistreated as human beings. Well, yes, and and, yeah. and so again, unfortunately, um, this country has a sordid history yeah. of exploitation of human beings, yeah. and uh, as much as we want to say it's over, it's not. That's right. Uh, we 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 still have. It is impossible to have a environment of safety when there's exploitation going on. That's mm-hmm. just not possible. Mm-hmm. And you may say, "Oh, well, we didn't have any injuries." Okay, yeah, you didn't have any. You can see. Mm-hmm. But emotionally, mm-hmm. physically, and often the reason why you don't see it is that nobody will tell you because they know that if they do tell you that there will be repercussions for them. So it, it's not possible to have safety and exploitation. They don't coexist. They, they, they don't. They don't. And, uh, but on the other hand, if you have an environment where the purpose of us being here as human beings is to do something great, is to is to and to treat each other with dignity and respect. I know that sounds utopian to some people, but I believe that those are the organizations, particularly into the next generation. They're the ones who are going to make the money. They're the ones who are going to get the best workers. Uh, they're going to get the best partners, the best business partners, people who are doing this. So, and <laughs> this gets into the you know the 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 foundation behind Star Trek. <laughs> How did I go there? How did you go there? Yes, uh, my ears are my ears are perfect. So, so, so when Gene Broddenberry and the, and the folks when they wrote Star Trek, they, you know, in 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 the, in the Star Trek universe, people don't get paid money because money's been eliminated because you've got a you know a replicator to meet everybody's basic needs, so you don't need so people are working because they want to contribute to society. Mm-hmm. I may not see that in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But that's what we should be working towards. As we automate, it ought to make things easier and safer for us. Not that you, do I need a job? Well, I need a job to get my basic needs met. But if mm-hmm. our basic needs were already met, would people work? I think people would because we want to contribute. We want to mm-hmm. work together. We want to do things that are important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can send a machine to take the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I, not, so this doesn't get into the whole conversation about you know, sentient AI and all that type of stuff. That's a little bit, you know, outside the conversation. Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, a, a, a machine doesn't have feelings. Uh, human beings do. So when we put the machine to to lift the thing that the human can't, it should make it easier on the human, not more difficult. So again, ultimately, ultimately, we should be striving for environments that are about achieving great things, whatever those great things are, 
and money should be secondary to that. I know that's difficult for capitalists. I get it. I understand. Mm -hmm. But um, frankly, um, I don't do this stuff for money, to be quite honest. I really don't. Um, I, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind making money. I really don't. Mm -hmm. But this is about, for me, uh, it, it's about a calling. Uh, and, and as the good book says, <laughs> some are called and few are chosen. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think that, you know, I, this is one of the reasons that I was placed on earth is to do this. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, it's difficult to buy me. <laughs> difficult to buy me. <laughs> And the well, and when we're fortunate enough, the older we get, the the easier that is to see for some of us, right? That that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. But but I'll tell you, and I just had, uh, uh, <laughs> I um, I, I met some some young people, um, and had them on the the, the podcast talking about uh, what G millennials and Gen Zers what they think about safety. I was just gonna ask about that because the things that you're talking about, I feel like. I feel like the rising Gen Zers who are entering the workforce now are aware of the things that you're talking about oh, yeah. today in a way that, and I have a child who's a Gen Zer, and I just see an awareness that doesn't exist in the other generations. Well, well guess what? It's our fault. because, And here's why I say that. So these kids always wore seatbelts. These kids had padding at their elementary schools and they fell off the jungle gym. Uh, they wore a bicycle helmet. Uh, they, we told them about stranger danger. And we, we, we have raised them in this safety-focused environment. And then we wonder, then we want, they are more in tune with their emotions than a lot of their parents are. That's uh -huh. not a weakness, it's a strength. It is. And, it and, is. and as they are coming into the workforce, they're going like, well, hold up. Oh, 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 hold up. You all been mm -hmm. telling us, you've been telling us to go into this industry and we ought to, it ought to be a career for us. But then we see what people did to you. We see you lost your job and your pension got invested by a bunch of unscrupulous people and we lost our house and they've had all that other stuff going on with them. So they're more, they care more about the, the one planet that we're on right now that we can actually get to and live in. Um, so they're actually, the reality is they're just smarter than us. And they're not going to put up with some of the nonsense that some of us have put up with over the course of our lifetime. And so this goes back to now. So mm -hmm. do you want them to work with you at your or because they won't, aren't going to work for you? They aren't. They're going to work with you, but they're not going to work for you. Right. <laughs> so right. um, I, I so if those that are wise. So there is this pyramid that says that data uh, sometimes becomes information, sometimes becomes knowledge, and ultimately becomes wisdom. Mm -hmm. The wise out there are figuring out, hmm, if I really want to be ahead, I want to create an environment where these kids, some of them are kids, when they come here, they're going to feel good about being here. They're going to know that I care about them as a human being, that I'm not here to exploit them, that I, when they, if they need time off, I'm going to give it to them. A uh, matter of fact, there are some companies I think uh, one of the big tech companies has talked about no time off requirements specifically. No, whatever time you need off, take it. Yeah, I, our our company HSI has that. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. so this is yeah. becoming mm -hmm. this is becoming more the trend. Mm -hmm. This is not going to be the exception. This is going to be the rule. The question mm -hmm. is, do you want to be in on it or not, or do you want to continue to do it the same old way? I'm the boss, and people will do what I tell them. Well, you're going to eventually be in a room talking to yourself. Yeah. And, you know, the Gen Zers and probably the younger millennials are more into talking about their feelings and their mental health in a way that 
um, our older generations, you and I included, never did or felt safe to. Yeah. And they're they're modeling and leading for us now in a way that's just beautiful. I, I, I am so glad to see it because I've always talked about it. And I, uh, that's one of the things that got me into trouble, you know. Ah, we don't really care. But but fortunately, uh, I I, w- <laughs> I was raised um, I was raised to be my own person, and think my own way. I, you know, and it was by my mom and my aunt. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't I, I you know I'd share a part of my that part of my story. I've never yeah. met my dad ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no male role models at all, mm-hmm. and so I had to learn some of this stuff on my own. But um, I learned from the two of them, you, you got to be your own person. And we can't, my mom never, she, she never, she said, I, she never said, I'm trying to be your mom and your dad. She said, I'm your mom. I don't know about some of that stuff about being a man. I don't really know. So <laughs> you're probably going to have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, I, but, but I do believe that that what we traditionally allocate to women, compassion and caring. And I think some of that rubbed off because I'm that, I'm that dude. I'm that dude who cries. <laughs> I'm that dude who, you know, and again, some might say that it's soft or whatever, and I'm, I, I wear pink. Uh, all, that, all that kind of stuff, because that's how I was raised. But I, I, as I have more birthdays, I value that perspective because it's centered on how I feel and how mm-hmm. other people feel, and that is important. Mm-hmm. It is, and she did a good job. She did a good job. <laughs> um, I want to talk about when we when we right before we hit the record button, you were starting to share a little bit about something that you did today, the day of this recording. That's pretty exciting. Um, do you want to talk about it? So um, I had the opportunity. So about uh, two years ago, I think we were. Oh, wow. We were we were right in the uh, in the throes of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I, I jumped on a webinar. It was an organization. Um, it was a webinar about addressing racism in your organization. It was this big corporation. I can't recall who they were, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. mention them. Even. And an association called the National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals. So I really enjoyed the webinar, NABCROMP mm-hmm. for short. They okay. facilitated the webinar, and this company was, I, I'm not sure even what the relationship was at the time. And they sent me a follow-up email and asked me, you know, well, what would you think about the webinar? It was pretty cool. Would you use some of the tools and whatnot? I got like, uh, I'm not sure. And the reason I said that is I looked at the profile of the company and they, there wasn't a bit of diversity in their group. Uh, mm-hmm. So I didn't believe that they were serious about, you know, I, I, <laughs> it's not what you say, it's what you do. What you do speaks so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So that encouraged me to join NABCROM because this is a group of black professionals from the uh, compliance and risk management space. And so I joined. I mean, I joined a you know a couple. I just I liked what they were doing, and they're yeah. still they were still pretty new at the time. So I joined up, and I says, "Hey, have you all ever had any leading indicator people?" I says, "Well, well, I'm an occupational safety. Oh, we'd love to have you." Mm-hmm. So so I so I formed a group, <laughs> an industry work group we call the Safety and Security Industry Work Group, mm-hmm. and it is the only predominant. What is the only group of safety professionals? that are black and is run by black people. That is fantastic. And, and, and right about the same time, there was another group forming in Canada. So we mm-hmm. are the, the safety and security industry work group of NABCROMP in the US. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, there's a group called the Canadian Association for Black Health and Safety Professionals. I'm like, what? And 
I found them on LinkedIn, to be quite honest. But we're, we're, we're both fairly new, fairly small organizations, uh-huh. uh, but we are the only two black associations with safety professionals that we're aware of in the, on the planet that we're aware of. Now, we're, we'd love to hear the other one, but most of, and this is not to be pejorative when I say it, but most of the, you know, the safety-related organizations have predominantly, you know, European people and mostly men. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's it. That, that is that's what it, it. is. And, and again, I, 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 I've said this before, but in my research, I've, I found out that when the OSH Act was passed in 1970, the 535 people who voted on it um, were 98% male and 98% white. And, and again, the, the act has been very effective in reducing uh, duty-related exposure and uh, injuries and fatalities, but not for everybody. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, that is not a criticism of the act itself or the people who created it, but an observation of the limitations. Because right. the, the act itself still says his employer, his work, it's as if there aren't any women in the workplace. That's right. And the thing that you ride to the top of the green elevator is called the man lift. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, 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 so it is. And so when I have these conversations about the connection between safety, diversity, equity and inclusion, it is not to say that I'm not one of those people who's going to bash all oh, white people are bad people and white men are bad. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if the, if everyone who the system is supposed to protect is not involved on the front end, the system can never meet the needs of folks who were not involved in the first. I'm, I am, I don't gender identify as a woman. I'm an, I'm an ally. Uh, matter of fact, I want to consider myself an accomplice. So I'll get in the car with you. I'll put, but, but there's some things that I can't speak for the experience of a woman. I have a wife and a mom and daughters and sisters, but I can't, there's something I just can't speak to. Women need to be able to have their own voice Black people, Hispanic people, disabled people, uh, LGBTQ plus people, whoever. We all need to have our own voice on how things affect us and have that be considered. Well, we can't. Yes, you can listen to everyone. And yes, it can be safe for everyone. It's harder. So that means that the PPE, honestly, I believe that all PPE should be custom built. I do, honestly. We're, I mean, we're we're, we're all different. Our, we're as unique as our fingerprint, and you're so and you're so right about the OSH Act, and our my our last guest um, guest um, Carla Davis Magic was talking about you know we've it's gotten us this far, yes. but it's not going to take us to the next place. We're sort of at this stagnant place in our success right now, and and. In part, it is for exactly what you're talking about. It's not addressing the whole of the workforce. That, 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 that's correct. And again, I, and the other, again, I believe that the key to addressing the whole workforce is addressing the identification, assessment, and mitigation of psychosocial hazards because that's where our problems lie. It is, we, it's not us looking different doesn't mean much. Doesn't mean much. Yeah. We think differently. That's the issue. And, yeah, and we think differently. Yeah. When, um, you know, I think about the complaints that I responded to when I was uh, an investigator with OSHA and the times that I came across things like uh, the complaint was coworkers shooting one another with nails in the nail gun. Mm. 
uh, co-workers looking over the bathroom stalls at one another. Mm. You know, like those are the those are some of the things that you're talking about, yes. you know, and then it's like I can't apply a law to that. Right. I mean, pretty hard to find a standard in the OSHA Act that's going to tell you you can't shoot the nail gun at your colleague. Uh, yes. Y- you know, I mean, like that's that's tricky. And so then, you know, what did I lean into? Oh, you lean into the general duty. Absolutely. There isn't anything else. And you have to look through the 300 logs and see if there's been an injury <laughs> right. so you can substantiate it. Right. And then, oh, I happen to work for a state plan that did have some workplace violence things yeah. Yeah. that I could apply. I mean, gosh, you know, I mean. It shouldn't be that hard, and there are real things that happen to real people every day. That, that, that's right. But but again, if we were in 30 other countries. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, they, where they figured it out. And, yeah. and, and also, but even here in the U.S., you know, the, uh, the proclamation by the uh, Surgeon General about the importance of mental health and the statements by the World Health Organization and the, you know, the International uh, Labor Organization and there, and the International Organization for Standardization. There's enough standard out there. There's enough good practice out there that says, why are we waiting for a law? People do safety things for one of three reasons. Uh, some people do it because it's the morally right thing to do. Some people do it because they think they're going to save a buck. And some people do it because they have to. That's why right. is it that we always cater to that and not try to... There are people out there who want... They just don't know how. And that's something that I try to do in... Uh, in, in my practice, for those who are interested in my consulting practice, is help you figure out how to do that. It's not really as hard as you thought if you get somebody to tutor you a little bit. I might mm-hmm. get people going, and you can figure it out past it. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not really all that hard. It does require a change of mindset, though. Mm. You know, circling back to the associations that you're part of now, um, and I asked you about what happened today. I don't think we got to that. Yes, I did. I did not. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, so today we had, um, at least the day of the recording, anyway, we had a a webinar, and the the title of the webinar was "Is Safety Is the Safety Profession for Me?" And mm. it was asked from the perspective of you know we're black people. Is safety a place for us? And it was you know it was a kind of a loaded question because the answer is yes. Because the safety profession is for any and everyone who wants to be there. And, and so the idea was to get people in both the U.S. and Canada who just happen to uh, racially identify as black people because um, to, to realize that, yes, there is a place for us. Yes, it is a noble occupation. Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, we, had, we were um, fortunate enough to have as a guest only the second black woman to serve as a regional administrator at OSHA. Um, oh, who is, okay. Billy Kaiser, I'll shout out to yeah. administrator. She, as a matter of fact, I met her about uh, nine years ago when I was working with the city of Atlanta. She was mm-hmm. in, in region four here. And it was just an honor to have her because she's a trailblazer. Yeah, she is. And, and she shouldn't be the last one either. Mm-mm. <laughs> you know, in, in 2023, when we're talking about the first or the second or the only, that says we've got work to do. And, uh, and again, our, I, again, I can, I'll let OSHA or anybody else know, we've got an association, we know people, call us. <laughs> yep, we can find people right. for you. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Um, Dr. Dennis, you started mentioning mentors a second ago. You know, find yourself a mentor. Um, 
And also, I think you have something to say about, you know, kind of the way you frame things for yourself and how you move in your in your career and thinking by asking yourself um, 10 year your 10 year from now self. Yes. And your 27 year old self. Do you want to talk about that is something that maybe listeners can maybe perhaps be interested in applying. To yeah. So so e- even from a mentorship perspective, it is difficult to be mentored when I haven't met myself. Um, because I, I think sometimes people spend a lot of time looking at other people and what have they done. And uh, the first person to meet is myself. And I, 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 I do share that I met myself at 27. Uh, matter of fact, I might have been 26, to be quite honest. Okay. Uh, so, um, as a matter of fact, there was a particular thing that occurred in my life. So, I, yeah, I'm pretty certain I was 26 at the time. And I made a decision that a lot of people thought was, you know, really terrible to them. But it was what I needed to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of consequences that have come for that. And I don't apologize for the decision because what I needed to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And so getting to know what was important to me and not having my my mom, you know, my 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 siblings, you know, people around me decide for me. And they say that your brain tends to form right around 25 or so there anyway. So maybe my brain just got fully formed. I said, I need to do this for my own reasons. Yeah. Uh, but but after I met me, I also got introduced to somebody else who really helps me out quite a bit. That's my future self. Uh, there's a, as a matter of fact, cr- uh, credit to um, a TED talk I watched once called "The Psychology of Your Future Self." And um, you know, w- w- if we had a conversation with ourselves in the future, what would our future self say about the decisions that we make today? And my ten year from now self, we've gotten to a really, we got into a groove that okay. virtually everything I do, I try to consider how would my 10 year from now self, what would he think about that? Yeah. And if he doesn't want to do it, I'm not doing it, mm-hmm. period. That's, it's really, that, those are the ones that, there are some that's not, I'm not really sure, that's, that's worthy of conversation. But if, if he says like, no, answer is no, period. Mm-hmm. End of story, mm-hmm. conversation over. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. until we do those things, even mentorship can take us in directions that we won't enjoy because we're simply because we don't know ourselves yet Mm -hmm. so once i know me then i can go so who's on this similar journey that i'm taking who's Mm -hmm. going you know who's interested in some of the same kinds of things who may be down the road where my 10 year self wants me to get in there there already Mm -hmm. so i i uh, unfortunately i i lost one of those mentors here um a little less than a year ago Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a shout out to then he was a, a fire lieutenant. His name was Angelo Duggins. Mm-hmm. And he took me under his wing when I was in recruit school <laughs> and mentored me throughout the vast majority of my fire service career. And uh, he, he again recently passed away again, unfortunately of cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have never met another human being who in in a work setting that caused me to feel safe and feel like I could be myself and, you know, encourage me instead of telling me that's a ridiculous idea. He's, he told me, he said, when I said, look, I wanted to be a chief and I was 22, he says, well, why not? Let's try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew it was going to take a while. He helped me study and, and, and didn't discourage me, but simply, so you want to try Let's try that out mm-hmm. and create this kind of safe space. He was, you know, a really, really important person in my life. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's what we should be looking for mm-hmm. is people who will, we can meet along the way 
That's Not right. that they can point the way, but we can meet along the way. If they haven't really gone that way, uh, it's kind of difficult for you to help me do something you don't know anything about. Uh, but people that you can meet along the way are very precious. They are. I had the great fortune of meeting myself when I was 28. So similar similar to you, from a pivotal experience as well. Sure. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about our listeners listening to this and maybe maybe that maybe that's resonating with some who are like, oh yes, I remember when I stepped in to myself. And for anyone else who saw, who that feels fuzzy for, you know, maybe think about um, what stirs in you, you know, what stirs something into you and where, and when that happens, you know, whether it's stirring you into action or stirring you into, that's not a line I'm willing to cross. Yes. Where does that come from? And it's probably when you figured out who you were, <laughs> would That's be exactly my right. guess. And, and, and carry that forward, right? And as you're pointing out with mentors, Dr. Daniels, you know, I, I believe in looking for what I might call earthly angels along the way. You know, like people, people, if you're looking for them, are in your path. They are. They are. Yeah. They are. And, and the other thing, too, is, uh, is don't depend on any one person to give you everything that you need. Amen. Because they, 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 they can't. You'll, um, you know, they say, don't, you know, don't meet your heroes. Um, the challenge is, <laughs> that's it, true. It, it's, it's not, it's not the hero that's the issue. It's you. Yeah, it, that's it, right. It's, it's your expectation <laughs> of the hero because right. even the heroes are humans. That's They're right. not perfect. Neither are you. They don't know everything. Neither do you. They can't do everything. Neither can you. So if we adjust our expectations, say, look for this person, this is what I get out of the relationship with this person or this group. And if I can't get every, you know, the something that I need, I don't need to discard this relationship. I need to make a new one. <laughs> I need to make a new one. and add to, you know, add to. I, I had the opportunity to attend a program at Harvard some years ago for senior executives in state and local government, and they, one of the things I walked away from, w walked away from the program with was this concept that relationships are primary, and all else is derivative. Hmm. <laughs> Amen. Dr. Daniels, as we're as we're um, wrapping up our time today, my I'm curious about, you know, you are 40 years into your career. You are obviously excited. Where are you taking this next, or what are what's what's got you fired up these days that you're going to continue? So, so first of all, my life plan, uh, my life plan is to go to 110. I did that specifically in my late 40s. Uh, you know, there's. Yeah. At the time, you know, with where medical research and all, so I didn't make that up. I, I mean, yeah. that, I believe that's possible. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, that's okay. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. and, and, and so everything that there's some things that I don't do because I want to make it to 110. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, and what I'm doing right now is finally, finally working full time for myself instead of part time for myself. I worked full time for other people and part time for myself for years. And in many cases, I, 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 my frustration was around, why is it that they're limiting me? Well, I was limiting myself by doing that. <laughs> why is it that they're treating me? Well, I limited, you know, I, I allowed that to happen. And so uh, I, I've, you know, it, it is exciting to be on the cusp of this explosion of focus on how people feel in the workplace. I, 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 I'm convinced of it. I believe it's going to happen. Uh, I'm doing everything that I can uh, in every organization I'm attached to. I'm having this conversation with them about how important it is to address how 
people are feeling about things. And so I, I, I want to be around to see some of the fruits of my labor. So uh, that's mm -hmm. what keeps me fired up and, you know, keeps me, you know, keeps me going. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Keep, keep it up. And my gosh, we all have so much to learn in this, in this regard. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Daniels. It, it is my pleasure, Jill. And uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation similar at some point in the future. I would love that. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more health and safety professionals like Dr. Daniels and I. Special thanks to Emily Gould, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening.